Today we're in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. I do want to give you guys a little bit of a uh, disclaimer as we start today. This is one of those chapters, as we're going to see here, sometimes there's a, there's a balance that I'm trying to do up here on Sunday mornings. You may not know it. But what I'm trying to do most of the time is I'm trying to both uh, fulfill the call to, to preach and to teach God's word. And sometimes we use those words interchangeably, like preaching and teaching, it's the same thing. Sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. In the mind of a pastor, it's, they're not, they're, there's, there's some subtle differences, right? And sometimes when we get into parts of scripture that you're like, whoa, this is hard and heavy and you got to dive into the, the brain work of the, the, the translations and the words and the ancient communities and all this, it's teaching, And for a lot of what I do, a lot of times, especially through the book of Genesis, is there's just sections of teaching, and that's it. It's teaching. But then the preaching part is, well, how do we apply all this stuff that we got in our head? How does it actually hit me in my life? How does it touch my heart? How does it stir my soul? Right? And so there's always a balance of teaching and preaching that you're trying to accomplish. But there's some chunks of scripture that really don't lend themselves to one or the other. Sometimes you read a passage and you're like, oh man, that's just heart. That just warms my heart. And I can really, we can preach about this and we can talk about this and we can take this and it's warm and fuzzy and feels great. Or sometimes it's just heavy and convicting. That also can be preaching, right? But then there's other passages of scripture that you're like, this is, I got to think about this stuff. This is teaching. And what we're going to look at here today is a little heavy on the teaching side, all right? Because today we come across the very first in the book of, in the Bible, the first genealogy, okay? Now, if you don't know what a genealogy is, that's all right. You're going to find out today, all right? Um, but I just want to warn you a little bit um, that that's where this is going to go here today. Now, here we are in Genesis chapter 5, and, and the way I want to start this off today is, is I want to think, because what we're going to look at, the title is An Ancient Decline, all right, we have been from, we've seen creation, the creation account, we went through that. God makes human beings, human beings begin to multiply, and we see sin enter into the world, right? That's where we've seen all so far in Genesis. And then sin enters into the world as they're in the garden and they eat the fruit. And then what happens? We realize that that sin is now translated on to the coming generations. Adam and Eve have some children, Cain and Abel. We look at that whole story. Cain ends up murdering his own brother, Abel. And then what we see is, is now humanity continues to expand and multiply, but what we also see is more of that same thing happening. More and more sin, and the moral state of this ancient world is on the decline. All right, so we're going to see more of that for these next couple of weeks. All right, but at the same time, we still also see this hope that is actually woven through the story of decline. And so today we're going to see an ancient decline, but we're also going to see a permanent hope. And I think that that's also relevant to the world that we live in now. Because sometimes when you read the news, when you talk to your friends, when you look around the world, you're like, man, this place is not in a good spot. Have you guys ever heard the the phrase, we're all going to hell in a handbasket? Anybody heard that phrase? I remember as a pretty young kid hearing that for the first time, and I thought, man, that's kind of, that's kind of funny. It's kind of weird. And it was, it, was, it was somebody like my grandparents' age that I heard using that phrase. 
And I'm like, to hell in a handbasket. What on, where did this thing, where did this even come from? All right, well, I've got a little um, picture for you here today. Uh, this is a t-shirt that you may have seen. Where am I going? Or where are we going? And why am I in this handbasket? It's referencing that very phrase, right? And that's how a lot of times people can feel when we start thinking about the world around us. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. And, and even though back then it was kind of like the cranky old people just talking about, well, in my day, it was good, you know, but now we're all just, we're on this, this slide. Well, as I've gotten older, what I found is this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I see where they were coming from with that. And I understand it a little bit more um, than I used to. So just because you want to know this, I looked this up today. The origins of this phrase, we're going to hell in a handbasket, goes back to sermons. Some pastor probably came up with this in the 1840s, all right? So at, at the oldest in print that we have are in some sermons from the 1840s of this phrase being used. And it was used to describe the moral decline of the society that, that they were living in, all right? It was this idea that we're blindly headed towards our doom while we think we're off to a picnic, Right? It's like, I don't know what's happening, but here we go. That's the, the concept behind this. Now, today, um, we have, we've, we've, been, well, we've been studying this fall in Gen Genesis. But what we've recognized as we've looked through Genesis is that that whole slide, that whole decline, this whole feeling that it's all falling apart, it, it isn't new. This isn't just how we feel right now because we read the news. This is the way things have been from the beginning, right? We've seen this slide happen. And it parallels in the ancient world our modern world. But as I told you, we still find hope, okay? Now with that set up, let's begin reading Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what it says. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. We studied that a lot earlier. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man or humanity, the general name for humans, when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived, listen to this, were 930 years, and he died. Okay, now here we are in Genesis 5, and what we're seeing described are these lifespans, and we're going to see more of this in this chapter these lifespans that are significantly longer than what we live today. And remember, sin had already entered the world. So it's not like, oh, people originally God created to them and then sin happened and so people die early. That's not what happened, right? Sin's already in the world here. 930 years Adam lives this, all right? So sin has entered the world, but these people are living like 10 times longer than we do. Well, is that possible? Is it possible? Could people live to be 930 years old? These are the types of things, especially for somebody who's never read the Bible before 
And, and for a lot of people who come to the Bible the first time in their lives, they're like, all right, where do I start with this thing? We read books from the front, so I'll start in Genesis. They get here to page six in my Bible. They get to page six and they're like, ah, I don't know about this. Close this thing and get rid of it. They're skeptical, right? Because they just read about some guy who supposedly lived 930 years. All right, even if they got past the first part, God said, and there was. God did this, God did that. Okay, that's pretty crazy, but we don't have any other answers. All right, we'll go with that. But then they get to this and they're like, 930 years? I don't know about that. With all of modern medicine now and everything we're trying to do for longevity and extending life and medicine and all that, we don't get close to 930 years. So is this even something that could be possible? And so they become skeptical about the reliability of the Bible. Some people try to come up with other theories that say, well, maybe they were keeping track of years differently then. Maybe that was actually, they say years, but they were talking about seasons or something or, or months or who knows, who knows, maybe, maybe it is. Well, I think, and I'm going to try to describe it to you a little bit, I think people did live that long, all right? Now, again, this is not a, a doctrinal foundational thing. So at the end of all this, some of you be like, no, there's no way they lived that long. That's okay. But I'm just going to give you my opinion on this one of why I think that this matters. We can still both be Christians and have different opinions on this. This isn't a problem. All right, here's my theory. And, and this is just my theory on my own thinking about it. Number one, one of the things that we know about the world now that we've even seen vary in our own lifetimes is that the earth itself was probably different thousands and thousands of years ago. The atmosphere itself was different. And so I believe that maybe the atmospheric differences had something to do with how these, these people aged. Secondly, the things they ate, right? They had pure diets at that point. It wasn't loaded with all sorts of preservatives and additives and all those things and what they ate. Not only that, I think um, the, the, when you learn the little bit of genetics that I learned in, in high school and college was that as our gene pool continues to go, we pick up mutations. We pick up diseases. We pick up other things that change us in our, our makeup. And so they had genetic purity. They had dietary purity and in in a different world, all right? So that may have something to do with it. Well, I studied it a little bit, and, and here we go. I have a little graphic for you here today. Modern science tells us that aging is caused by four primary things. Four primary things. I think you got it up here. Do you have a picture? Yes, here it is. Here's the four things that they say are factors in aging, like just normal factors. The first one, we'll start over here on the top, chronological age, all right? Basically, as you live longer, you have a, there's a risk of dying, <laughs> right? So that's, that's part of it. The risk factors increasing over time. Um, secondly, over here on the bottom left, oxidative stress. And that's an interesting word. What that is, is, you know, you've, you've heard people say you should eat blueberries because they're antioxidants. Oxidative stress is, is stress to the cells of your body that happens from out the outside. So it could be UV light from the sun hitting your skin cells and causing issues. It could be chemicals that you get exposed to, all this, right? It breaks down your cells from the outside, all right? The third thing is called glycation. And I didn't know this term, but what that is, is damage to your cells from sugar and food. You don't know this, but sugar binds with different parts of the cells of your body and it can cause cells to break down faster, it also has good processes and good use too, so you can still have 
you know, your ice cream a couple times a week or whatever. But um, glycation breaks down cells. And then the last thing, which is really fascinating to me, is called telomere shortening. Okay? Now, you're really going to geek out on this one. Telomere shortening. Scientifically, our chromosomes, and we all have chromosomes, the caps, the ends of our chromosomes, are stretches of DNA called telomeres. All right, and what these telomeres are are basically extensions of your DNA that are repeated so that every time that a cell divides, what happens is it takes some of that information to, to, to uh, retain the, the, uh, the right code in your different genes. And telomeres regulate uh, how many times our cells can reproduce, okay? Whether we can live 50 years or 500 years is all regulated by this process. Interestingly, some scientists have postulated that if we could control all those other effects on aging, and if we could control telomeres, people could live up to around 1,000 years. Huh, that's ironic. <laughs> um, that's, but that's what modern, look it up, that's modern science. Because on average, the cells in your body are replaced every seven to 10 years. All right, now, some of the cells in your body um, only live for a couple of days, but others live for your entire lifetime. But on average, most of the, the cells of your body that you have right now are not the cells that you were born with. So they're constantly replicating. They're constantly being changed. But when you start having all these, these factors that come in, it shrinks our, our ability to um, live long. With relatively minor adjustments, our bodies could potentially live as long as what we see in Scripture. All right? Now, that's my, my side note for you for today. If people ask you, well, how can you believe the Bible? It says that people live to be nearly 1,000 years old. Now you know about telomeres, and you can tell them. All right? And what we're also going to see in Genesis that you don't see here yet in chapter 5, we'll see in chapter 6, is that God is going to make a decision to limit the human lifespan. And uh, we'll talk about that in chapter 6. But I, I believe that he did it through these natural processes that we just studied. Okay, so what else do we see here in these first five verses? The other thing that we want to pay attention to is the fact that Adam and Eve continued to have children. Sometimes people think, okay, yeah, Adam and Eve, they had Cain and Abel, and then they had Seth. That was it. They had their three boys. and that, No, that's not actually what Scripture tells us. In fact, what it tells us is, no, they had many other sons and daughters, and they continued to have uh, children. We have no record of how many that was, but probably many, many children. Get a load of this. You may not have thought of this before, but they feasibly could have had dozens, if not hundreds of children, Adam and Eve. I mean, think about it. If midlife didn't happen until around 450 years old, right? If, I mean, some of you moms are like, oh my gosh. This is the whole deal where the oldest kids take care of the younger kids, and that just has, it would have to be the way it goes. But it's possible. It's, it's theoretical. But it was a very different world that they lived in, okay? All right, so let's move on here. So then in, in chapter 5, verse 6, it says this. When Seth, so that's their, their son, had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh, 
Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. There's a name for you. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. And if you wondered, yes, that's the oldest guy right there in the Bible. 969, Methuselah. And he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. That might be a name that you recognize from this list. Saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right. Is that the first time for some of you that you've actually made it through one whole genealogy? Come on, you guys can admit it. I know what it's like. You go through the reading plan and you get to one of those genealogies and you're like, all right, skip that. Let's keep on going. All right. But here's the thing. We can find some good stuff in these genealogies. The Bible has several of them. And if you've tried to read through the Bible before, you'll see that. You come across these genealogies. And you're like, oh my gosh, this list goes on and on and on. I can't say any of these names out loud. And what, what's the difference? What even matters? What's the point of it? Well, here's the thing. It's part of our human nature to want to know where we come from. We kind of want to know. We're curious. How did I get here? Okay, I know my parents. What about my grandparents? What about my great-grandparents? What about my great-great-grandparents? Has anybody done any of the, like, Ancestry.coms or 23andMe or, you know, the family tree things? That? For some people, they don't really care. But for a lot of other people, it's, it's fun. It's like, wow, this is interesting. When I, was, when I was in high school, uh, my best friend, this, this guy named Drew, um, he had been adopted uh, when he was a baby. He and his brother both. His parents couldn't have kids on their own. They adopted these two baby boys in Oregon back in the 1970s, all right? And Drew, uh, when I met him, I met him at 12 years old, and, and we were good friends through high school. We're still good friends now. Uh, Drew, we'd have these conversations where he would he and I would talk about he, where he would say, man, I always wonder what my biological parents were like. This was back in the, like I said, in the 70s when they were, there were closed adoptions and this was a closed adoption. So he knew very little information 
about his biological parents. In fact, it was like the amount of information they put on this little note card that kind of came with the, the, the stuff from the adoption agency. And he was adopted when he was like three days old or something. So it's not like he'd have any memories. And the few little things on this card were stuff like, you know, um, that your dad was a student at the University of Oregon and that he had dark hair and dark eyes. And that's about it. And here's a couple little tidbits of information about your mother, you know, her age and, and stuff like that. And so for Drew, it was always this kind of open-ended thing of, man, what were they like? Am I like them? Do I have similar traits? Do I look like them? You know, how did this work in their lives? And, and this wasn't um, anything against his adoptive parents. His adoptive parents were awesome. He loved them. They were fantastic. They, they raised he and his brother well. Um, it, it wasn't this whole thing of, I wish I had those other parents. It wasn't that. It was just the curiosity of where did I come from and, and how did I get to this place? What was it that caused them to give me up for adoption? Why, you know, how did their lives unfold? Now, I tell you this story for two purposes. Is the primary one is just to try to get you to feel and think about what that would be like to really want to know where you come from. All right? And I think that that desire, that longing that we have is what's tied into why these genealogies exist. Now, I, I would love to, I, I would talk too long if I told you the whole story of what happened with Drew. But in the um, mid-2000s, something like that, the law changed in Oregon and the records were unsealed. And so what happened was all of those adoptions, those closed adoptions were opened. And so for the first time in his life, in his 30s, Drew had an opportunity to request the information about his birth parents. And I, this story is crazy, and I could spend the rest of our time talking about it. I won't tell you all of it, but here's what happened is uh, Drew put in the request. They ended up sending him his information, and here he gets, for the first time in his life, a little statement that says, your birth father and your birth mother, this was their name. He never even had a name, Right? And so Drew, as processing all this, a life of this pursuit and curiosity comes to a head. He sits down in front of a computer, types in his father's name into a search bar, right? Hits return. And what happens is he immediately gets a picture that has a very strong family resemblance. It's the kind of thing where he's like, oh my gosh, I'm looking at myself 20 years from now little less hair, a little more weight, but it's like, this is crazy. This is where I came from. Now, the crazier part of this story is the way that it ended up is, and, and this, is, this is the hard thing about knowing where we come from, because when we find out where we come from, we find out some good things, but we also find out some bad things, and there's always that risk when we go a little deep. Now, what that picture actually was, was a recent mugshot of his birth father. And as he goes through and starts studying it out, his birth father had stayed with his birth mother for all those years and had a major alcohol problem and ended up in a drunken situation killing his birth mother. And this had only happened a few weeks earlier. His mind's blown. He's like, what on earth? This is the thing I've always wanted to know all my life who these people are, and this is what I see. Now, as the story went on, ultimately, there was some, there was some good closure for Drew in it. 
The, the good part of the story is he ended up meeting two half-sisters that he had that he has a wonderful relationship with now. I've met them both. And, and there's some, some real healing and some wholeness that came from the whole thing. But it was a crazy experience all the way through. As you can imagine, going through all this emotional thing of what if, who are they, who could they be? And then you experience it and you understand it. Our ancestry can help us understand where we fit in the world, but it's both in negative and positive ways. And in the Bible, we find these genealogies that tie us back to our humanity. They tie us back to where we've all come from. They give us some sensitivity and some awareness of who we are as humans in this world. And there's some good parts of us and there's some bad parts of us. Every one of us, right? We've all fallen. We're all sinners. We have that same shared heritage that Adam and Eve had. And we come from this long line of sinners. But we can also see the work of God in people's lives. And that's why these genealogies exist. Because the Bible uses genealogies to trace the faithfulness of God throughout human history. And there's a thread that ties human beings all the way from Adam to Jesus. When you get into the Gospels, one of the genealogies shows you that very genealogy, that lineage. It says so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, from Adam all the way to Jesus. Now, the tree branches in every direction, but there's a path from the first sinner to the only Savior. Romans 5 says it this way, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, this is back to the sin of Adam and Eve, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So, by the one man's obedience, referring to Jesus here, the many will be made righteous. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's why we don't ignore these genealogies. That's why we don't just skip over them. We want to recognize their value and also we'll often find these little bits of interesting and impacting uh, bits of information embedded in them. Okay, the big picture that, that you need to get out of this genealogy that I think Genesis is wanting to teach us, the big thing that comes out of it is that Noah came from the line of Seth. And last week at the, the end of chapter four, we saw that when Eve had Seth, she said, God has appointed this one for us, right? Because she'd lost Abel, Cain had murdered Abel, and then they had this other son, Seth. And at that point, Adam and Eve recognized, hey, this son is special, God has appointed this son for us and there's a purpose in his life. We don't know what it is, but this son, Seth, all right? It's from that line, the line of Seth, that as we trace through these next 10 generations, we come to Noah, all right? Before we get to Noah, though, we see in verse 24, this very interesting verse that I do want to bring up to you just because he, he shows up again later in the Bible and you might have recognized the name. In verse 24, we read about this man named Enoch. And it says this, it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now that's kind of like a cryptic sentence. You're like, well, what does that mean? He walked with God and then he was not? 
uh, we need some more information. Well, for all the centuries, people wondered that. And, and scholars talked about it. What did that mean? He walked with God and he was not. Did that mean he, he died? Because sometimes in scripture, it says God took him. That just means he died. It was time for him to go. You read about a, a king, uh, Hezekiah in the Old Testament, where uh, God uh, sends a prophet to him and says, Hezekiah, take care of your household. It's time for you to go. I'm going to take you. And uh, that story gets crazy too because Hezekiah's like, no, I'm not ready to go yet. And, and there's this that comes with it. But sometimes that phrase, God took him, means he died. All right? But what we find later in Scripture, in the book of Hebrews, it's clear that the author of the book of Hebrews believed that he didn't die, that that's not what it was referring to, that there was some sort of supernatural thing that God just took him off the planet. All right? Um, that was the traditional Jewish belief in the first century. Here's what it says in Hebrews 11.5. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, that belief led others to speculate that Enoch m- must be one of the two witnesses described in the book of Revelation. Personally, I think Moses and Elijah fit those roles better. Um, But I think that the highlight that we find here in Genesis really doesn't have a whole lot to do with how he died. The reason this pops up in the genealogy is because of how he lived. All right, read that verse again with me, verse 24. Enoch walked with God. Yeah, and he was not, and God took him. But the important part, the big difference here, is that the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but Enoch, he's walking with God. That's the important part in this little section. Enoch walked with God. He was one of the rare people of his time to walk with God. Sin was on the rise, and so humanity was on the spiritual decline. And it doesn't give us a whole lot of chapter, uh, detail in this chapter yet, but next chapter, uh, with more about Noah, we're going to find out that wickedness was prevailing. The whole society was melting down. Murder, sin, wickedness, death, destruction was happening on earth. That's what was happening in this this ancient society. All right? The rest of the world was heading in that direction, but Enoch was walking against the flow of traffic, and he was walking with his creator. And I really wonder how much influence Enoch had on his great-grandson Noah. He wasn't alive when Noah was born. This tells us that he would have been about 69 years, or had been dead for about 69 years when Noah was born. But he, the phrase was, he walked with God. And next week we'll see the exact same phrase used to describe Noah. There's two people right here in these chapters that walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Two generations later, Noah walked with God. And I also want you to notice that even though Enoch had the shortest lifespan of these relatives, he died at a young old age of 365. Um, he, his legacy of walking with God was the most profound, more than all these other people that had lived all these years. Think about that. I hate to tell you this, guys, but 200 years from now, if people are still on this planet, you will probably be forgotten. And I probably will be too, right? It's just the way time goes, a couple hundred years from now, not even your family will probably remember you. Now, you, maybe your image and likeness uh, will remain. Maybe your wealth will be pa- passed down for generations. 
Maybe some of that will happen. And, and, and maybe they'll get to be entertained by not just your name, but also the digital footprints that we're leaving behind on this earth, right? Where they can go back and watch some video from 400 years ago in 400 years. Um, I don't know. But still, who you really are as a person, that's going to be limited to the people that will follow after you. It just is. It's the way it is. But I do believe that we can leave a spiritual legacy when we walk with God that will encourage and influence the generations that will follow us. That's important to know. We can pass on the hope of Jesus to those who follow us. And that hope will continue long after we're dead and gone. Why? Because the hope that we have in Jesus is a living hope. It doesn't die even if we were to. 1 Peter 1.3 says that very thing. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's what we see in Enoch's grandson Lamech and then his great-grandson Noah. Let's look at these um, just last couple verses here as we finish up here this morning. Verse 28 again. It said that uh, Lamech had lived 182 years and he fathered a son and he called his name Noah. And look what he says about Noah. He says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one will bring us relief. He had a sense, an understanding, a feel that yes, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. He's looking around at his relatives even, and he's saying, this place is a mess. And he goes back and he knows the stories of the fall. He understands God, because of sin, cursed this land. And we understand that we're living in fallenness. We're living in brokenness because of this curse. We understand that that's what's happening and what has happened. But he says, but this one, this one Noah, God's going to do something special with him, something different with him to give us some peace. Now, if you know the story of Noah, you realize, yes, God's going to use Noah, but it's not going to be in the way probably that his father or grandfather would have ever expected. He is going to kind of give earth a reset, but it's going to be at the cost of a lot of lives. There's going to be some major difficulty that happens. But even though destruction was coming, hope, this hope that he had for Noah, the hope would survive. So here's, as we finish here today, I want you to ask yourself a couple of these questions. First off, I want to ask you, do you have hope today? When I show you this little graphic image of, that says we're all headed to hell in a handbasket, where some of you are like, amen, I'm buying that t-shirt. <laughs> That's how I view the world around me. That's the way this place is. And every time I read through the, the news feed or I, I watch some thing that's going on, when I look at the world, I'm just like, this place is doomed and this is heavy. And I've just got this pessimism that I walk with all the time. Okay, I understand why you have some of that and why you see some of that. But do you also have hope? Is there hope that balances you out a little bit? And if you're a Christian here today, you are a person of hope. Why? Because you have put your faith in a savior who says there is hope. That the brokenness and fallenness and sinfulness and wickedness of this world is temporary. And that there is hope beyond. 
right? And that is how we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be people of hope. So first off, you've got to ask yourself, be honest. Do I actually have hope here today? Secondly, I want to challenge you to see the thread of salvation in your own life that reaches back to Jesus. We look at these genealogies and we say, okay, we can take, we can take Noah back to Seth. And we know that Seth, there was a promise on Seth's life and it led to Noah. And then later as we go through scripture, we'll see that Noah, you can follow him into to David and King David. And then from there, all the way up to Jesus. And we can see this thread all the way through. Do you see the thread of salvation reaching back to Jesus? My faith heritage goes back to my parents and their parents before them. But then it breaks for me. I don't know who shared the gospel. I know it was some evangelist back in the, what would have been 1920s probably, that shared the gospel with my great-grandmother. And that brought faith into that side of my family. You know, so there's some of those things that we know. But recognize that. Think about that. Sure, we can see the modern decline of the world around us. We know that morals are decaying and that there's wickedness out there. Death and destruction are a reality. But we also know that Jesus is alive and he's on the throne. So think about these things this week. Talk about your heritage and your legacy. And let's be a people of God that choose to live life with our hope set on our Savior. And may we be a generation that walks with God. Amen? Pray with me. Father, I do thank you for your word here this morning. And God, I thank you for the heritage that you give us. I thank you, Lord, that these things are recorded in scripture, even though sometimes I've not recognized the value of them. I do believe, God, that that you knew what you were doing when you captured these things for us. And Lord, today I pray that we would be a people of hope. I know, Lord, that it is sometimes easy for us to get bogged down in the difficulty in the struggle, in the sin around us. And it's easy to become cynical and critical and pessimistic. But God, you give us more than that. And you have given us hope. You've given us a future. You know what you're doing and you're paying attention to us. Lord, and I pray that today we would be people that hang on to those things. That we would be people that recognize you We recognize that thread of faith and truth and goodness in the world. And the Lord, we'd be able to celebrate that. One of the ways that we are to be distinguished from the other people on this planet is that we would be people of love, people of joy, people of faith, people of hope. And so, Lord, I pray that you would grow those things up in each one of us. Lord, that we discard all the other stuff that gets in the way of that. And that through it, Lord, that we might even be able to be in someone else's heritage and in their lineage of faith. As we go into the world that we live in and we share the gospel, we share the good news, we share the hope that we have in you. God, make make us those people. And we thank you, Lord, for teaching us to do that and reminding us of that today. Be with us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name.